both those uh, special numbers this morning and the hymns um, were, uh, I'm certain, uh, spirit-chosen, if not uh, spirit-filled people choosing in light of the text that we are looking at in Ecclesiastes chapter 7. So I trust that uh, you listened well. Uh, music is intended in the scriptures, in the context of worship, to be instructive and then sound good. Amen. Are you with me? <laughs> it's to be instructive. You can't look at any place in Old Testament literature in relationship to songs and certainly New Testament uh, in relationship to music and not see that its primary purpose is to extol truth to our creator and then to one another, uh, to lift praise and truth. But anyways, this morning's content for sure of all of these numbers, uh, all these songs, certainly underpin uh, the text where we're at. Those of you who are guests, we travel through uh, a book a year. We try to. Sometimes it goes a little bit longer than that. We just take all 66 books of the Bible and we study them together one at a time. As a matter of fact, next Sunday night, uh, we're going to be studying a, starting a, a studying the book of Luke the book of Luke. So if you're interested uh, in understanding that gospel, uh, let us know uh, and show up and you'll learn together. If you disciple during the Sunday evening service, you continue to do that. Uh, if you'd like to join your discipler uh, in here to study that gospel, you're always more than welcome to do that. Okay? All right. Let's read this text together. Uh, as you're journeying there, remember uh, I guess we do have some details about uh, Carol Lagle's funeral. I think the, the viewing uh, there uh, will be a Tuesday at uh, the funeral home there in Willoughby, Davis Funeral Home, from uh, 4 to 8 on Tuesday, with the funeral at the same place Wednesday morning at 10 o'clock. Uh, again, many of you may already have that information. Any other details, we'll have those forthcoming to you. Remember, studying, starting in chapter 6 and verse 1 through the end of verse 14 of chapter 7, uh, Solomon is addressing wisdom to the wealthy. And we've placed all of us into that category of the wealthy, understanding that uh, college and high school students may not always feel very wealthy. Uh, but for the rest of us, uh, I think we're in good shape compared to the rest of the world. This has been good wisdom for us. We're going to wrap up this section, uh, which concludes in verse 14 uh, on the wealthy. If there's time, we'll continue on into um, Solomon's help in giving us wisdom discerning the character of man. How do we properly discern what character is uh, and how to um, live quality character here in verses 15 to the end of the chapter. But again, if we don't get there this morning... Uh, we'll start there next time we're together. We left off last week beginning to consider verse 11 of chapter 7. There's a couple final wisdom points here given to the wealthy. He says, Wisdom along with an inheritance is good and an advantage to those who see the sun, for wisdom is protection, just as money is protection, but the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the lives of its possessors. Consider the work of God. And these two verses especially are verses that have been addressed already in song this morning. 
For who is able to straighten what he has bent? In the day of prosperity, be happy. But in the day of adversity, consider. God has made the one as well as the other. So that man will not discover anything that will be after him. When I was growing up, uh, we had a very, very long, long driveway. And that was before the days when we had a snowblower and before the days when we had, um, were able to pay a snow plow to come. And um, it was a long driveway. When I say a long driveway, this was probably close to uh, 70 to 80 yards. And it was not a fun driveway to shovel. Uh, especially with the heavy, wet lake effect snows. Um, when you had to get up and get going in the morning and the snow fell overnight, uh, you had to pretty much guess where the driveway was when you would leave. Right? And if there was a second car, uh, hopefully the first car made it through the snow on solid ground without uh, slipping off to the side. Inevitably, uh, one would slip off to the side and get stuck in the mud and we would always have to get out there and, and help assist uh, to get my parents unstuck out of the mud and in time uh, us kids that never changed there was always those ruts on either side of the driveway after a clean beautiful white snow uh, we would always drive off to the side not being able to discern exactly where the driveway was uh, and, and put two wheels in the mud, uh, therefore making the beautiful white snow not so pretty uh, anymore. Um, those were consistent ruts. We were not able to avoid those. You say, well, why didn't you just put up stakes along the driveway? I don't know. <laughs> it's like, I just really don't know. Just blame it on my folks. I don't know. Maybe we didn't have the stakes, but it makes a lot of sense to me. But uh, we, we, I guess we would prefer to get stuck in the mud and then push ourselves out. I, maybe that was more fun. I don't know. But those were uh, consistent issues that we always had. I, th I think when I, when I read through the issues that wealthy people have and applying wisdom to their lives, I feel like wealthy people often... Uh, self-inflict more hardship upon themselves than non-wealthy people. I mean, Solomon was a wealthy guy. He had put himself through the proverbial ringer, right? With self-inflicted hardship. He's repented, now he's governed by God to write these words of wisdom, but I really think he's speaking to his own past here. Uh, in much of this book, particularly here when it came to riches because he never lived the time in his life without a lot of wealth. And he keeps reminding us here how to apply wisdom as we live with a lot of stuff. With a lot of stuff. And verse 11 and 12 teach us that wealth is always better when actively coupled with wisdom. On any particular day of the week, a wisdom-filled life is a protected life. Even if it is a life full of many things. Our wealth may even be knowledge and not money, but that life is also protected. 
when governed by wisdom. Proverbs chapter eight and verse 35, Solomon wrote. It's a good cross-reference here for verses 11 and 12. Whoever finds wisdom finds life. We know Solomon also wrote that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and, and wisdom really does preserve the life of its possessors. It's a powerful statement made by a godly man considering our immediate context. Wealth is to be enjoyed, and that wealth coupled with wisdom gives birth to eternal purpose, not just for living in the here and now. When that wealth and wisdom is invested in eternal purpose, we truly know as a people of means what it, what it means to live life with joy. And wisdom does preserve the life of its possessors. Often when we have many good things, those many good things can become the things that dominate our existence. I would just encourage you as a pastor, as I try to encourage myself and my family, that even though we have a lot of things, let's make sure that those things don't distract us from knowing and understanding wisdom. What's wisdom? Well, Solomon asked for it, right? First Kings 3. The Lord promises to give it to us lavishly in James chapter 1. But wisdom, just simply, as I've told you many times, is living the Bible. It's just the Bible with hands and feet. So we, we've got to know our Bibles. We really have to know our Bibles. The assumption is, from the life of Solomon, is that the more you have, the more you should probably devote yourselves to God. Because these many things can be many distractions. So I'm just going to ask you again, do you have a time in your day that you devote your heart to the Word of God? Why do we ask that often? Because we're a wealthy people. Wealthy people have a lot of things and a lot of opportunities to give to them that we are to enjoy because they're good gifts from God, but God never intends one good gift to distract us from that which is essential in our lives, which is to give our hearts to the word of God on a regular basis. Okay? You cannot live these verses. You cannot appreciate wealth without wisdom because wisdom protects the lifestyle of the wealthy person. So the assumption is here, right? This book of the law shall not depart out of our mouths but we will meditate in it day and what? Night, Night right? You know. You should cross-reference here. James 1.25, next to verses 11 and 12. Joshua 1.8, Psalm 1. John 17.15. Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. Self-ministry is necessary so that we can know how to live the word, which is wisdom, and wisdom protects. Wisdom protects. I fear, and this may not be true, but I fear 
that the least devoted group of people in Christian history may be the children of the information age. Because they will equate even spiritual knowledge with wisdom. The more I can get, the more I can gain, the more I own. But can you live it? Wisdom is not just learning for learning's sake. Wisdom is what? Wisdom is protection and protecting the way you live. So you've got to be able to take what you know, discern it by the Spirit of God, so you know how to live it and give it hands and feet. And folks, I would say that Solomon would say we're really not devoting our hearts to the Lord until we're living the will of the Lord. So it's not just knowing. The knowing has to give birth to the living. Okay? And that's protection. And just remember, the more good gifts that God gives to us, and those are his good gifts, James 1 tells us that. Solomon's just reminding us that those can be distractions away from devoting and living wisdom. Okay? All right, let's move on to verses 13 and 14. Consider the work of God. For who is able to straighten what he's bent? Verses 13 and 14 that we've already read instruct our hearts that God superintends the afflictions, the bent things, and the days of prosperity in our lives. And the text tells us that God has made the one as well as the other. We don't control these things. We can only live with wisdom under them. And I chose the phrase under them on purpose because the New Testament would teach us by one particular Greek word, the Greek word is hupameno, where we get our English word perseverance or patience. It means to live under a trial, but to do so faithfully with wisdom. To live under. Certainly we are to count it all joy when we fall into various trials. And if we do that, then we'll live wisely. We'll ask for wisdom, same context. He'll give it to us liberally. And that wisdom, taking the word of God, giving it hands and feet with the Bible, will do what? It will cause us to persevere, hupameno. Live well under pressure, really is what it means. To live well under trial. God superintends the bent things and the good things. Walter Kaiser has a, a very helpful paraphrase of these two verses. I'll read it for you here real quickly. He says, look with wonder, admire, and silently wait for the result of God's work. The contrasts of life are deliberately allowed by God so that men should ultimately develop a simple trust and dependence in him. For prosperity... And the goods from God's hand, be thankful and rejoice. But in adversity and in the crookedness of life, think. Reflect on the goodness of God and the comprehensiveness of his plan for men. There are twists and turns that God providentially allows into our lives. And I want to be very, very careful here for those of you that have just known the Lord Jesus for a few weeks here maybe for just a couple months. I want to be very clear that you understand that James chapter 1 says that, that God does not tempt man to sin. 
So when I say God allows affliction, this does not mean that he allows affliction to the point where he tempts you to sin. James chapter 1 tells us that every man, when he sins, is led away of his own lusts and is enticed. All right, And when that temptation turns to sin, that sin lived out can turn to death. But that's man being led away of his own lust and enticed, okay? God doesn't do that. But God does allow affliction. He does allow hardship. He sovereignly superintends how much of it you get. But he also does the same for the good things. We're going to finish with a little statement um, that Warren Wiersbe has in his devotional commentary on Ecclesiastes 7. He says, the Lord knows how much hardship to give you to keep you humble and he knows how many good things to give you to keep you happy okay that's what these verses are saying there's a lot of unexpected god intended hardship that comes our way for the development of our person for the development of our character and and certainly this is hard for many of us to wrap our minds around, including your pastor. But we must wrestle our hearts and our minds unto the truth of this wisdom literature, particularly in verses 13 and 14. I'm going to give you some New Testament texts that help me wrap my mind around the wisdom in verses 13 and 14 of Ecclesiastes 7. 1 Peter 5, 5 through 7. I've mentioned that more than 10 times since we began the book of Ecclesiastes. If you will humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, he will exalt you in due time. Cast your care upon him because he cares for you. I've told you many, many times as pastor here that, that really anxiety is the absence of humility and humility is the absence of anxiety. We must wrestle our way to understanding humility to humble ourselves under God's granting, if you will, what Paul calls in Philippians chapter 1, he graces us with affliction so that his grace can develop us to endure through affliction. So even affliction is called a gift from God, according to Paul in Philippians chapter one. As we humble ourselves under it, understand his grace that allowed it is that same grace that helps us develop through it. And I'll tell you that humility in that regard is the absence of anxiety. So if we're anxious, about affliction, and remember he's talking in particular here to wealthy people. I find it fascinating that the amount of people that deal with anxiety and depression is actually clinically higher among the wealthy than it is the poor. The more we get, the more we have, the more we're distracted. We already talked about that, we understand what to do with that, but here, Solomon saying if we really understand wisdom, we'll be able to wrestle ourselves to the reality that God does sovereignly allow a balance of both 
difficult things and good things. And I have here in the margin of my Bible, 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 13. God doesn't tempt you above that which you are able, right? But he always gives what? The grammar there is singular. He always gives a way out for any particular affliction that you're enduring by his grace, right? I find it very interesting that 1 Corinthians 10, 13, for believers, people are typically looking for a person or a situation as the way out. Who is it that can help me? Or what is it that God's gonna send my way in the course of my day that's going to help me out? What is the way? Can I just submit to you this? It could be a person, it could be a situation, but can I tell you, I really think in particular it's always God's word first. He never gives you a, a temptation that he doesn't allow a way out through the word. So go there first. And just beg God. <laughs> I need help. I cannot get myself out of this. Funk, whatever it is. Give me something in your word. And search for it until he gives it. Because it's there. God may add to that a person and he may add to that a situation but I think a lot of times we look for that person or situation at the expense of looking to the scriptures first. Okay? So 1 Corinthians 10.13 One godly author said this that in, in practicing these New Testament texts and in understanding the wisdom of Ecclesiastes 7, 13, and 14, we are learning to cooperate with the inevitable. Learning to cooperate with the inevitable. The Living Bible Translation says this, see the way God does things. This translation actually sounds a bit harsh to me, but I'm gonna read it anyway. See the way God does things and fall into line. Don't fight the facts of nature. Wearsby softens that a little bit. And he says wisdom, the call to wisdom here is not a summons to slavish fatalism. It is a sensible invitation to a life yielded to the will of God. And if God makes something crooked, He's even able to make it straight. And perhaps he will as he works in us to get his job done. End of quote. So we have to ask ourselves the question, is okay that God thinks it's okay for us to have a situation in our life that's bent? He didn't cause it. He's not the root of it. But he allowed it the seemingly overwhelming hurdle, this overwhelming weight or pressure. Well, Romans 6 tells us that where the effects of sin or sin did abound, grace what? Grace does much more abound. God supplies for us supernatural help from heaven to shoulder up under the weight of any given affliction any bent thing and still wrestle our minds to what? 
Let's go to 8.15 again, the end of this third section, and let's remind ourselves of our clothesline here of chapter 8 and verse 15. So I commend pleasure, for there is nothing good for a man under the sun except to eat and to drink and to be what? That's even the person that's underneath the pressure of a bent thing. Wrestle your way to being merry. And what's he say next? And this will stand by him in his toils throughout the days of his life which God has given him under the sun. So for the wise believer, gone are the days where we will always need a perpetual string of paying attention to conferences, seminars, Bible readings, counseling sessions, and maybe even medications that always are addressing depression, how to get through hardship, how to get through trial, how to do this, right? It can happen. It can happen. But grace abounds more. God's grace abounds more. So as you read verse 14, I really believe the weight of this verse falls in the latter half of the verse. God has made one as well as the other so that man will not discover anything that will be after him. Wow. Basically what Solomon's saying is here, God gives one as well as the other so that you can't predict your own future. You're willing to trust your future to the Lord. Okay. Let's go over to 1 Peter chapter 4. I referenced and mentioned 1 Peter chapter 5. Okay. Now, for those of you who are in the medical field, you know my heart if you've known me long enough. If there's a biological problem, there's a biological solution. If it's a spiritual problem, there's a spiritual solution. Right? I don't tell people to get off their medications and I don't tell people to give medications because I don't have a PhD to do so and I never will. Okay. But I've been around ministry long enough to know that there's a lot of people that are on medications because of a spiritual problem that they've endured for way too long. And sometimes that was an affliction brought upon them and that's a tragedy. They may never get off that medication, I would never tell them to. But it is a blessing to see in time for some where God's grace has helped them through the word of God overcome the pain and the agony of that affliction, even if it was afflicted upon them, to find victory in the word, with the spirit, with the comfort of God's people alone. Right? That may not come for some. It has for some. Right? Who's more spiritual than the other? That's not me and my call. The point is here, humility should be the absence of anxiety, or at least help with anxiety. And when we're living underneath the constant distraction of anxiety, there's a certain level of humility, certainly, that's not there. Paul says, in, as Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 12, Beloved, don't be surprised when the fiery ordeal among you, which 
comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree, right? I love that qualification. But to the degree that you share in the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing. There's that theme that sounds a lot like Ecclesiastes chapter 8 and verse 15, wrestling ourselves to joy in James chapter 1, right? So that also at the revelation of his glory, he gives us some hope here to look forward to. It's always, hope is always coupled with joy. You may rejoice with exultation. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. And then he goes on here, make sure your suffering's not self-inflicted. That's pretty much what he says here in verse 15, okay? In verse 16, but if anyone suffers as a Christian, he's not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in this name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God, and if it brings with us first, that will be the outcome. What will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved, what will become of the godless man and the sinner? In other words, quoting Old Testament scriptures here, he basically says the righteous perseveres, not of himself, but of grace, with wisdom. Wisdom protects the life of the persevering saint. And the conclusion is in verse 19, those also who suffer according to the will of God. Remember, not self-inflicted pain, but God suffering crooked or bent things that God allows shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator while they continue to do what's right. That's literally what it's saying, in doing what is right. And again, I would put down here 1 Peter 5, 5 through 7, right next to verse 19 here, 1 Peter 4. We've got to use the word of God to wrestle our minds and our lives back to living with purpose, living with eternal purpose, with joy, even though we're living underneath something that's crooked or bent. God's grace has to be powerful enough to help us with that. I've talked to many, many believers who have said, I don't know. Let's just think about it. So my response back is, if, since God's grace is powerful enough to save us, why is it not powerful enough to sanctify us regardless of what's happened in our past? Why is something that's happened in our past incessantly a roadblock from us walking forward in Christ's likeness? You want to know why? Satan's a powerful dude. He's a powerful dude. He doesn't sleep. He's up all day, all night. He's got millions of partners. And it's a wrestling match. You have to make a choice. 
to actually believe that the grace that saves you is able to sanctify you. I want you to do this for me. Humanly, we can't, but I want you to try. Not for long. Could we number the sins that we've committed since we were born? Could the whole of the sum of our sin be actually greater than one ugly, tragic event that happened to us in our pasts? It's a logical question. It may be. All I'm saying is where sin abounds or the effects of sin abound, grace did much more abound, else it's not grace. It can't be. It either is and it does or it's not and it won't. Grace resurrected your old soul from a lifestyle of really dark stuff, did it not? Amen. Did it not? Amen. Can it not help you grow to be more like Christ? Unhook the wagon of trials of your past and embrace grace. Amen. Embrace your Savior who endured much more than you ever have. Quit whining, quit complaining, quit wallowing in your mud, and embrace grace. Embrace Jesus. Humble yourselves. Humble yourself under God's mighty hand, and he will exalt you. I have no help for you but the grace of God in Jesus Christ. I can't help you. Do not look to me. Do not look to us. Look to him. Amen. Please look to him. Tell him he can't. And you've already told him you won't. All I can tell you is God superintends the bent and he superintends the blessing. Amen. And the wisdom life is the protected life. <laughs> Enjoy wisdom and enjoy grace. None of us make it out of this old world without that. And we certainly aren't wrestling ourselves to joy. And if we're not wrestling ourselves to joy, we're certainly not wrestling ourselves to living life on purpose. And if we're not wrestling ourselves to living life on purpose, we're certainly not walking around this world with a burden for the lost because we're so burdened with our own brokenness. Wisdom people are healthy people who live with eternal purpose and vision. Wisdom people are healthy enough to actually look for lost souls and help them by the same grace with which they've been saved. Amen. We've got to work ourselves out. We must have grace, an understanding of grace. Omnipotent, life-changing, transforming grace. We must, we must, we must. Okay. Entrust ourselves to a faithful creator while we continue to do good things. You remember the life of Job, right? 
can't talk about something on affliction without considering the king thereof outside the Lord Jesus Christ, right? Consider him first. That's what we did. Maybe for afflicted souls, maybe spending more time around the Lord's Supper would be good for us. I don't know. Maybe considering the affliction of our Savior more often, more sincerely maybe, would help us understand that our affliction compares in no way to his. Job's wife didn't get it. She didn't understand that God superintends the bent and the good things, so she told him to curse God and die. People that don't comprehend grace, that's what they do. What does Job say? The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. There is an intentional wisdom balance we all need to embrace. We've discussed it. So why does God allow this? Well, apparently because of the way the verse finishes in verse 14, to keep us from ever thinking that we have a corner on the truth, even in relationship to our own futures. Right. Right. Jump over with me as we close to James chapter 4. James chapter 4. I'll be honest with you folks. I am, some of you don't know me very well. I, the world is a noisy place. It's, a, it's, 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 it's very loud at times, even to the point where it makes your eardrums hurt. And it's got a message to preach. And sometimes I feel like we're so much involved in getting the world's message that really is noise that even makes our, our ears ring as compared to getting the message of God. Maybe it's okay that the message of the word of God rings in our ears a little bit. So when I get a little louder sometimes, maybe I've got a purpose for that. Because I know you're going back out into a world that's just gonna make your ears ring all week long. And maybe if God's words are ringing in your ears, that'll help a little bit, I don't know. But this is a big deal. This is a big deal. Right? Wealthy people are being addressed in the book of James. I think it's an appropriate context. And James says to these wealthy religious people, come now you who say today, tomorrow, we're going to go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You're just a vapor that appears for a little while and vanishes away. Now, remember that within its context here at the end of James 4 with wealthy religious people. Cross-reference here, if you, Ecclesiastes chapter 6, verse 1 through chapter 7 and verse 14, because this is wisdom applied to wealthy people. Right? And he says here, hey, here's a good idea. The word come now in verse 13 is a very, very emphatic Greek verb. It means you better listen up, buddy. 
<laughs> pretty much in our language. If you don't listen up, if things don't go well for you, then it's your fault. If you'll listen up and it turns out good, then it's God's fault. So listen up, buddy. It's probably not a good idea to make all your plans for the future without doing verse 15. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills. Consider him, consider his word first. We will live and also do this or that. But as it is written, you boast in your arrogance. In other words, you're making your plans for your future without God. All such boasting is, the Greek word here is paneros. It's the same Greek word used in 1 Corinthians 8 that's used of a believer who's not wise in the way he lives around a weaker brother. If you cause your weaker brother to sin, it's evil for you. It's darkness for you, paneros. You can't get more descript in darkness and wickedness than that Greek term, okay? So think about that. There's two things that the Lord above considers the darkest of the dark that even believers can do. Causing a weaker brother to be offended and leading them into a life of sin and or making your schedules without considering God. And this is the last part of verse 14 of Ecclesiastes chapter seven, right? Don't think that you can lay down your future. You can plan, but you always better be ready for God to direct. Therefore, to one who knows to do right and does it not to him, right? It is what? Sin. Okay, it is sin. So we know what's to do right. Now that's really simple. But for some reason, in this context, other context, Ecclesiastes chapter seven, wealthy people can get distracted by a lot of things away from wisdom. A lot of good things and even some crooked things. But wisdom always protects. Wisdom always helps us wrestle our minds back to living the word of God with the people of God on purpose for eternal purposes with joy. I'm increasingly encouraged. Many people who are guests here, even outside pastors, visitors, they say that you've got a really happy people here. And all that tells me is, is that God's given us a group of people here, by and large, that are wrestling themselves to allowing wisdom to protect their lives. Because they're living with joy, and then they're living on purpose, and then they're living with eternal purpose. We're actually healthy enough to know that we may never live outside the unavoidable things God superintends for us, but we can still live life with purpose. That's super encouraging to me. For a very, very, very small remnant here, maybe James 4 will be convictional to you. Maybe Romans 6 will do the same. I don't know. But for those who are perpetually struggling under the darkness of affliction, these bent things, just know that you are surrounded with a great cloud of persevering, joyful witnesses. So you not only have the Lord and his witness of his spirit in you, you have the spirit of God-inspired word in front of you, and now you've got spirit-filled people all around you. Let grace speak to you through these things and through these people. 
God does intend for you to live a joyful and spiritually intentional, spiritually reproductive life. So remember the beginning this morning about that unfortunate ditch on the side of our driveway that we kept getting stuck in because we wouldn't put stakes along the driveway? Maybe this morning we learned how to put stakes along our driveways using the word of God so that we can live life with joyful purpose. Okay? So, that's me. That's all I got to share. I hope you still love me because I still love you. Okay? But Jesus is enough. His word's enough. The witness of his spirit through you. It's a tremendous added blessing. So many more practical things I want to do and say right now, but I'm out of time. But I just want to help. So I won't do it maybe another time. Love y'all. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we love you. Thank you so much for the opportunity just to have our family. Uh, Lord, I don't know where I'd be without these people. But Lord, um, I know, as we've preached this morning, that I don't know where I would be without my Savior, without his grace, without his word, and then without these people. I don't know where I'd be, Lord, without my family that you've gifted me with. Lord, there's some here that have no family. But in Jesus Christ, they do. Help us, Lord, to walk through all of these blessings and all these bent things. Help us to bring each other to being able to entrust ourselves to a faithful creator. While we continue to do good things together with joy, in Jesus' name, amen.